this morning is going to be Acts, Acts 13. You can find the passage in the Pew Bible uh, on page 979. It's Acts 13. We're going to look at verses 13 and following. Uh, just a little context, uh, just, I know you're not in the book of Acts, we're in the book of Acts, but in Acts we find that Luke, this follower of Christ, a physician, a meticulous historian, uh, a friend of the Apostle Paul, he brings together this historical account. Uh, really, it's actually, Acts is actually Luke part two. There's two volumes. There's the Gospel of Luke, and then there's Acts, which just continues really the work of Christ. Even if you look at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, he's talking as though it's a continuation of the work of Jesus. Sometimes people even refer to the book of Acts not as the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the risen Christ through the Apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that's kind of a fitting title because Jesus is still carrying out by the power of His Spirit great things. Luke could have researched all of this. He could have cherished it for his own. Uh, He could have kept it as a memoir or something to share with others as a keepsake for his family. But instead, inspired of God's Spirit himself, he knew that this was of eternal consequence and he shares it with us. He records the words in the opening of chapter 1 in Acts, the words of Jesus before he ascends. It's Acts 1 verse 8 when Jesus says that you will be my witnesses, you will receive power by the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's like these concentric circles going out. Uh, Some people say that that really kind of forms like the table of contents for the book of Acts. As it's recorded, it goes out from Jerusalem. It extends out over 30-some years of history. It just expands the kingdom of God, and we see that. At Acts 13, where we are in this chapter, it's actually a, a pivot point. There's a turning of sorts because what has happened is it, primarily the, the gospel movement, the Spirit is working, Peter is preaching uh, in Jerusalem, and others are declaring the word, and the church is growing, and it's expanding. But it's not expanding out beyond that. We're just now beginning to see as it reaches out to a a, a few Gentiles here and there outside of the city and in the city, we see now there's a pivot because it's the Apostle Paul along with Barnabas, that son of encouragement. They go out from a city called Antioch. Antioch is the third largest city at this time in the Roman Empire. Uh, Lots of Gentiles there. There were people that were converted uh, because the Jews were being persecuted, pressed out. Antioch is a place that became the the hub of a great deal of missionary activity. This really records the first what we call missionary journey in the book of Acts, beginning in 13. That's where they are. But now they've moved on. They've they've sailed out. And what we now read here, Luke captures, filled by God's Spirit, a God-centered, a God-saturated, if you will, sermon that we read of. Paul here, formerly known as Saul, an enemy of God who has a terrible past, but a transformed heart. This is what he is about to proclaim. Follow with me. This is a long passage, so bear with. Acts 13, verse 13. Hear this. This is the word of God. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga of Pamphylia, but John, that is John Mark, left them and went back to Jerusalem. They continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law, the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue, sent word to them, saying, 
to Paul and Barnabas, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites of you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their day in the land of Egypt and led them out of it with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. This all took place about 450 years. After this, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. They asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart, who will carry out all my will. From this man's descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior Jesus. Before the coming to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now, as John was completing his mission, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not the one, but one who is coming after me, and I am not worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those Among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he appeared for many days in those who came from him, from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. As to his raising from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the Holy One, the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, You will not let your Holy One see decay. For David, after serving God's purposes in his own generation, fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and he decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that could not be justified from through the could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away, because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. We'll pause there. I know that Mark's already prayed. Let me pray again for us. Please join me. Father, right now, uh, we confess, we say, even as the psalmist said in Psalm 119, your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And so, Lord, regardless of where people are right now as we start today, would you aid our, our hearing? with your Holy Spirit and with faith so that we reach a place uh, that would be for our greater joy, uh, for your greater glory. For Christ's sake, we ask 
your blessing. Amen. Between Christmas and New Year, uh, our family made the long trek. We loaded up our minivan with our four kids and our Boston Terrier, and we headed down to the Carolinas, where I'm from. It's always a sweet visit. It's worth the 15, 16 hours uh, straight in the car. Uh, the highlight of this year's trip was the fact that my brother and I uh, took a, a kind of a side trip. We headed down into South Carolina to visit with my grandmother, Lou. Uh, she's in her 90s, a wonderful woman. Unfortunately, the last few years, she's declined considerably because of dementia and even in the last uh, month or so because of some strokes. Uh, she is now at home under hospice care. So we traveled down. We wanted to, to visit with her, my brother and I, and, uh, and we, we had such a sweet time uh, she couldn't remember what uh, she asked five minutes ago. She couldn't remember what I said five minutes ago. But uh, as we traveled there, we brought along with us some photo albums. And we opened up these photo albums, and I began to point to people and ask, you know who this is? And she knew everyone, just about. It was a sweet time. I, I looked at my grandmother, and I said, Grandma, do you think about heaven? And she says, all the time. I said, who do you look forward, Grandma, to seeing in heaven? She said, Jesus. I said, yeah, but who else? She says, the Lord. I said, but, but who else, you know? Everyone. I said, Grandma, would it be okay if I were to sing some hymns? And as I began to sing hymn after hymn, great is thy faithfulness, blessed assurance, my grandmother could finish every one of those stanzas. I knew she had lost her sense of humor because when I got done singing, she says, you sing like a good Baptist. <laughs> Which is what I grew up, and she knew that. I said, but Grandma, you know, I'm not a Baptist. And she goes, but you sound like one. And then she smiled a bit, and she says, okay, good Presbyterian. I hugged her and said goodbye. For many years, it's been expressed that I'm the one to conduct her funeral. I sense that will be much sooner than later. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. And sure, it seems like some people are a little bit closer to that day as much as we think or know or assume. And there are definitely people that seem more prepared for death. And I'm not talking about a will or life insurance or certain goodbyes. I'm talking about something else. Why would I bring all this up? You know, there's not anyone in this passage that is at death's door. Nobody here is dying. But the truth is, all those in Paul's hearing that day are dying. We all. Here today are dying. And Paul, in his hearing, there are people that will have responses to what he would say, and they will be of eternal consequence, as we'll see here in the later verses, the latter verses. Now, if you're taking notes, or just to kind of frame our understanding of where we're going in this passage and unpacking it, first are the words of encouragement and warning. That's the section I read, 13 to 41. But then there's the responses. So the second heading would be the responses, beginning in verse 42, of belief and rejection. 
Well, let's begin here with the word of encouragement and warning. This account opens with Paul and Barnabas. They're in the synagogue. There's a mixture there that day of Jews, obviously, in the synagogue. But there's also some of these that he would refer to in verse 16 and in verse 26 as the God-fearers. That, by the way, is referring to Gentiles who had found, them, found themselves, because of, of the intrigue, their interest in this one God worship, into the synagogue. There would have been a typical liturgy that day, an opening uh, proclamation of the, of the Shema. There would have been prayers. There would have been reading uh, from Scripture, as is recorded here. And then it, wouldn't, it would have been customary if uh, perhaps there was a, a visiting a person that they, if they had a word. At this particular day, maybe someone recognized Paul, who formerly was Saul, a Jewish leader, and they're invited to come and speak. And it looks like Paul's ready, right? I mean, off the cuff, spontaneously, he launches into this sermon. He traces a long span of redemptive history. And all along the way, I hope you got the sense that God is the author of all of these saving events. In fact, if you were to study this very closely, and I encourage you to go back and read it and do study, you'll find that God is the subject of all the verbs that happen throughout this sermon that Paul preaches. You'll see it there, right? Verse 17, God chose. 18, God put up with them. Verse 19, 20, 21, God gave, God gave, God gave. Verse 22, God raised up. That's echoed again in verse 37, God raised. And the heart of the message, even as, as, as Paul is pressing in, verse 32, he says, is good news. And we ourselves, if you look there, verse 32, proclaim to you the good news of the promise. That's his word of encouragement. God's the author of salvation, whether it's the exodus, whether it's the raising up of judges, whether it's the conquest of the land of Canaan, the promised land. Paul makes very clear all along that God was preparing, as the author of salvation, an agent of salvation. David, but then David's greater son, King Jesus. That's the climax. Jesus isn't an add-on to history. He is the very culmination and climax of this history. The one who fulfilled all of the prophecies and promises. But of course, as Paul highlights here, he is rejected. He's rejected by many, by some, as an imposter. He was executed. They were wrong to condemn him. Verse 27 here, the true Messiah. But ironically, even in condemning him, they fulfilled the very promises because he came to die. It was foreseen, it was foreknown that this would transpire this way. The one who was king, the one who faced death on a cross. Ultimately, uniquely, he though is vindicated. He is raised up to glory. So, so this is where the good news culminates, right? Let's look again at our text. This is where it becomes most clear, perhaps. Verse 38 of the text. Here's the, the, the closing of his sermon. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. That term, by the way, justified, is sometimes and can be translated freed. 
Everyone who believes is freed, justified, freed from the guilt of sin, freed from the power and the penalty of sin, freed, right, from having to prove yourselves, freed from the bondage of sin, freed from condemnation. David Garland, a scholar and commentator, writes this, the law, because he's saying here, in contrast to the law of Moses, David Garland says, the law cannot produce righteousness. It can only demand it. The law cannot lead to justification, that is, our being made right with God, because it cannot transform commands into actions. Well, then then why is the law so crucial? Regularly, I remind folks in my congregation that the law of God is a gift. It was and it is a gift. It is like, it's like tracks that our heart was intended to run on. But tracks, not a ladder. It cannot be obeyed into our justification. We cannot, we cannot find freedom by climbing the law in hopes that God would find us acceptable. The law also, in addition to being the tracks, not a ladder, the tracks, is also a mirror. The law is a mirror. It teaches us, it exposes our hearts, our inadequacies, our, 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 our failures, our sins. Yes, even our need for a Savior. The law of God does that. The cross is that fulfillment. The, the cross is not an accident in history. In fact, John Stott, in his famous book, The cross of Christ writes at the cross in holy love. God through Christ paid the full penalty of our disobedience, our breaking of the law himself. He, Christ, bore the judgment we deserve in order to bring us the forgiveness that we did not and do not deserve. On the cross, divine mercy and justice were equally expressed and eternally reconciled. God's holy love was satisfied. That's good news. That might not be new news to you this morning, but it's good news. Good news of freedom, right? In this life and in death. Well, then the warning comes, right? You see that as he closes in verse 40? So, he concludes, beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Those who would have known clearly. Everything that he said is not you know, entirely earth-shaking up until the point of Christ and the resurrection. And now he's saying, don't be, as he quotes here in verse 41 from the prophet Habakkuk. He's saying, look, look, don't be a scoffer. That's what happened. That's what happened in Habakkuk 1. The people of God, Israel, were rebellious. And God said, I'm going to do something in your day. You wouldn't even believe if someone explained it to you. What was that? That God would raise up the wicked Chaldeans, the Gentiles, to be, not, to, not only to discipline them, but to raise up the wicked Chaldeans to be the agent to discipline them. They couldn't believe that. But they had rejected. And so would be their story. So what is he saying to them in their hearing? The rejection has happened in the past. Don't let it be so today. Don't scoff at the weight of truth. I'm saying it's to you as well. 
I don't know, maybe, you're, maybe you just woke up, you know? I'm, I'm saying right now, hear the truth of God, His good news. His agent of salvation through Christ. Don't let the weight of, of gospel, good news, truth. This is a, don't scoff. This is a matter of eternal life and eternal judgment. Well, let's move on. Let's see in this next section how this message was received. What are these responses of belief and some rejection? Well, let's look verse 42. Let's pick up our reading. As they were leaving, the people urged them to speak about these matters the following Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them, urging them to continue in the grace of God. Presumably, they were converted. Verse 44, the following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, well, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, that is the Jews first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Jews heard this, they rejoiced. They honored the word of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Well, what happened, right? The response, then, as it has been down through the ages up until this very day, the gospel is proclaimed, the good news goes out, and the response is varied. It shouldn't surprise us. Sometimes that rejection, right, to the, to the preaching of the good news is in the form of apathy. I mean, presumably there were people that left and said, well, you know, good for them, whatever. I mean, it doesn't really intersect with my life. I don't know what the relevant, whatever, Jesus, not that big of a deal. Sometimes, though, it shows up in anger, in antagonism. Verse 44, the whole town, practically, the whole city is gathered there to hear the word preached. And there are some who are angry. That's a surprise to us. But verse 45, these Jewish leaders, they know that there's a competing message. They're jealous. They don't like it. And furthermore, it ran contrary to their narrow view and assumption that salvation was for the, for the Jews, not to those Gentile dog people, nations, no. Paul and Barnabas are saying, this, this is where the crossroads with eternity happens. Look again at the text. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. And then in verse 47, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. In other words, again, your very rejection is part of the very fulfillment of the plan. To be a message, to be a beacon of light to the Gentiles. 
<clears throat> but then there's this even aggressive rejection that continues in verse 50. But the Jews incited prominent, God-fearing women, leading men from the city. And they stirred up this persecution. Notice there, right? Notice the terms describing these Gentile women and these leading men. To even describe it that way, those terms are, are, are ones of, of comparison, right? These are high, quote, people. And the high people, the proud, the self-sufficient, rejected. But others that day believed. Others worshipped. They, they had joy. Their response is one that leads to eternal life. Not, not life part two, but eternal life. You know, whenever you hear John 3.16... It's not just applied to death. Oh, you know, God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not die, perish, but have eternal life. By the way, that begins now. Not when we, just when we die. It's humbling to consider that so many of those that day who knew the story, who understood the unfolding of a promised Messiah, when he comes to them, they reject him. They assume that they had it all together. But here is this supposedly less deserving group of Gentiles, and what do they do? They embrace it. But notice the language there. And I, I want you to carefully look at the text here. You may have picked up on this as we're reading over it. This is not something unique here to this recording of Luke. This is elsewhere in Acts uh, and in Scripture, not unique to, to Luke. But verse 48, what does it say? When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Hmm. Notice, it did not say all who believe were appointed to eternal life. Isn't it a humbling thing for any and all of us to consider that it is the very sovereign mercy of God that would overcome our resistance and rejection? God is the one who softens hearts and opens ears and minds. And we ought to be looking and saying... Why me, of all people? Here's a few takeaways. Just in summary, first of all, believe in Jesus. Verse 38, don't reject him. Don't reject, by the way, also the full and finished work of Jesus for you. By trying to earn it through moral performance or merit. Some forms of rejection, yes, are apathy. Some are antagonism, but some are rather anxiety, worry, worry that we must earn God's love, that we must achieve, that we must perform and produce, whether it's religiously or in our career or in our parenting and our reputation or our place in society, to, to clean up our shame, to push away our guilty conscience. God, love me, please tip the scales. No, Believe wholeheartedly in Christ. Secondly, I would say, 
humbly continue in the grace. That's exactly what Paul and Barnabas said for them. Continue in that very grace, verse 43. And then number three, I would say, rejoice in glory in the word of the Lord and the spread of that word. That's exactly what the Gentiles did in verse 48 and 49. Do you know this, by the way? Do you know this freedom? Do you know this level of forgiveness? Even now, as you just take inventory, you know, your own conscience, your own sense of the fact that there is a God who is holy, He is just, He is the judge. Does this characterize this this freedom, this forgiveness in Christ, the good news of the gospel? Does it characterize your life? Will it characterize you at death? How will you look back? May it not sound like the dying words of Buddha on his deathbed said, Let the Dharma and the discipline that I have taught you be your teacher. Sounds like law. All individual things pass away, strive on untiringly. But contrast that to Jesus who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. What does Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. Don't you dare think, assume, or conclude that you can earn what I have paid for in all at the cross. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Anyone know that name? Anyone here go to Bowdoin College? There's a big statue in Maine of this man. He was a great Civil War commander, leader, hero. The Lion of the Union, he was often known as. A lot of people don't know is that he loved Jesus. At one of the battles during the Civil War, a group of men that he was leading, Chamberlain, ended up being shot. He entered his pelvis, ruptured part of his bladder, and that bullet stuck in his gut. This is, by the way, a battle wound that 90% of physicians would say in that day and age would have been fatal, no doubt, if not more. He lay there being wounded in battle thinking for sure this is it. He would die. And so he picked up pen and paper and he wrote to his wife. We have a copy of what he wrote. By the way, he didn't die. Uh, He ended up living another 50 years. He received the Medal of Honor. He became very popular. On that popularity, he became the governor of Maine. Went to seminary, became a professor at his alma mater, Bowdoin College. Became the president of Bowdoin College. There's a big statue of him there. But thinking he was dying for sure, wrote this. My darling wife, I'm lying mortally wounded the doctors think, but my mind and my heart are at peace. Jesus Christ is my all-sufficient Savior. I go to Him. God bless and keep and comfort you, precious one. You have been a precious wife to me. To know and love you makes life and death beautiful. Cherish the darlings. Give them my love to all the dear ones. Do not grieve too much for me. We shall all soon meet. Live for the children. Give my dearest love to Father, Mother, Sally, and John. Oh, how happy to feel yourself forgiven. God bless you, ever more precious, precious one, ever yours, Lawrence. 
Do you hear the bookends of what he just said? You know, you, you know the, the, the banner over this man's life is not medal of honor for the cause, for the country. Look at the accomplishments. I mean, this is a man of profound intellect. He knew nine different languages. Not even family. No, the banner over this man's life, as he himself would describe, is forgiven. Die, or so he may have thought. He writes, what? All-sufficient Savior. Closing, how happy it is to feel yourself forgiven. I'm telling you, friends, today, the same can be true for you and for me, if you, by faith, humbly come and repent and turn and trust in the all-sufficient Savior. The banner over us and our life can be forgiven. And that's because the banner over Christ is forsaken. We need the righteous actions. We need the record of Jesus to be for our credit. That happens through repentance and faith, through turning and trusting. That is freedom. And what's the fruit of that? Well, even if you yourself are rejected and suffer in this life like Paul and Barnabas, it can all be closed with what? What does verse 52 say? They left and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy. Father, we thank you for being the God of steadfast covenant love. You are a covenant-making God. You're a covenant-keeping God. And we're grateful this morning, you who work salvation, even putting up with them and with us. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for your law. Those tracks our hearts are meant to run on and operate within. Would you deal with every heart here today. Deal with my heart. Clear our minds. Uh, Tear away any confusion of lies that the enemy would try to plant. Guide us, Holy Spirit, that we might run to Jesus. Treasure Him. The hope that is ours in the gospel more than anything or anyone. And upon cherishing Christ, we would commend Him and share Him with great joy to others. We're blessed this church. Thank you for them, their, their witness, their love of the kingdom of cause. Bless them and their leaders. These people here gathered today, in Jesus' good and all-sufficient name, we pray together. Amen.